So we started this last week, but it was really just the introduction, and we're going to go back to that and then continue on. Uh, we are almost done with the book of Revelation. We still probably have another probably seven, maybe eight lessons uh, to go. Uh, one quick announcement before we jump into it tonight. We did it last year kind of because of COVID and everything really went well and I enjoyed it. So we're going to do it again. Uh, the month of May and June for our Wednesday night service is going to be doing church outside. Uh, so come prepared for that. Uh, we just had a great time with it. We're going to start it at six o'clock and the reason for that, uh, it's usually what time we ate. Uh, we had a, a time of, of eating and meals and then we'll kind of start the service portion around 6.30. We'll have some, some fun games and different things like that outside. So I'm really excited about that. We'll start that in May, the first Wednesday of May. The last Wednesday night of May, we are doing kindergarten graduation. We have uh, five kindergartners for our little Christian school that are graduating, so we're going to have a special graduation service for them. So that'll be a special night. Kevin, you want to participate in that? No. Oh, okay, I didn't know. <laughs> I it was just like... <laughs> I know, they're all like excited about it. I mean, we can have both of them participate. You too? I could... Uh... You can give a speech or something? Oh, graduating into sixth grade. Congratulations. We're just doing K-5, okay? All right. So that's the last Wednesday night of the month of May. And then one more announcement. Um, COVID messed a lot of things up. Weren't able to do anything last year. But we're going to be doing on, I think it's the 25th. It's the last Sunday night of April. At 5 o'clock, uh, we're going to do a what we're calling a night of worship, and it's just going to be a worshipful night, as well as the Lord's Supper, taking, partaking of the Lord's Supper, the Lord ta Lord's Table on that night. It'll be about an hour service, so uh, excited about that. That'll be the last Sunday night. Don't really have anything on Sunday nights. I do a lot of training in discipleship on Sunday nights, but we're going to specially reserve that night for that. So May tw or April 25th, uh, the last Sunday night of the month, we'll be doing a, a night of worship and partaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, 5 o'clock. All right. Revelation chapter 17 tonight. Revelation chapter 17. I'm in Proverbs. That is completely the wrong book. <laughs> completely the wrong book. Yeah, I mean, it's in the Bible. That's a good thing, but completely the wrong book. Yeah, Let me find my place. Verse number one, because we're going to be in the whole chapter. We already started, Kevin, but we're going to continue it, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Do I need to send you to the back or send you with the little first graders? Probably. Possibly. All right, let's go ahead and read, and then we'll uh, jump into it tonight. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abomination of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her. So the next several verses is the angel explaining to John what he has seen. And remember, 
We can't take everything literally because there's a lot of figurative language within the book of Revelation as well as literal language as well. Uh, but in verse number 7 again, uh, I will tell thee of the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition, as they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they beheld the beast that was and is not, and yet is. I'm going to stop right there. We're going to read the whole chapter and, and finish the whole chapter tonight. But in my study of Revelation 17 and 18, really this is the destruction, the demise, the fall of Babylon the Great. And really this is re referring to the system of the world. And the, the title of the lesson tonight, some of you may have brought your notes back from last week, hopefully you did, but the title is The Danger of Worldly Seduction. And what we see in chapter 17 and 18, as we'll get there next week, is Babylon the Great is fallen finally has been destroyed. Now, we have to understand that when John is writing this book, sometimes I think in our, in our minds we think that, okay, these things are just happening, happening systematically, that one after another. Sometimes it's kind of jumping around. So really, back in chapter 14, if we remember, there was an angel that flew through the heavens and proclaimed, hey, Babylon the Great is fallen. How many remember that when we had that chapter? So really... What we are learning here in 17 and 18 is how the system fell. Remember in chapter 16 were the vile judgments, the, the, uh, the bold judgments that were poured out upon the earth, the final judgments of God. Again, we don't know the exact timetable of these in the sense it's going to happen on this day and this month of this year. We don't know. What we know is what John has given us. And really... The fall of Babylon the Great, really this world system, some believe it might even be Babylon, the city kind of, you know, resurrecting itself. But regardless, this happens during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. We can't just say it just happens at one time in, in one or two days. It's a, it's a de demise that is going to come about with all of these judgments. So we have to put that in perspective if we can. But one thing that we have to understand, and we talked about a little bit last week, is the importance of really worshiping God for who He is. And I think I have it in your notes and really just kind of a, a way of review. We've talked a lot about the wrath of God. The wrath of God being poured out upon mankind, uh, upon the world at this time. And, and sometimes, I think I mentioned it on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, sometimes it's hard to fully comprehend a God of wrath. At least for me it is. Because we view God as a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of grace. All of these different characteristics. Wrath, it's just so sometimes foreign to us. Why would God uh, be a God of, of judgment? But we have to understand that is, that is one facet of His character that is very important. But in, under, in order to understand the God of wrath and how... Uh, people in heaven are, are worshiping this God of wrath, we have to understand a couple very important things. First thing is that we have to start with a high view of God. We must start with a high view of God. This is going back to chapter 15, where it speaks of God's greatness and His goodness. And, and what we learned throughout Revelation early in chapter 15 is that God, again, is sovereign. What does sovereign mean? I've been talking about that for years now. What does sovereign mean? Uh, All-powerful, all but He's in control of everything. I'm glad one person understands that. Obviously, I haven't preached on sovereignty enough. Sovereignty, he is sovereign over all. He is in control over all. He is feared by all. He is glorified above all. 
He is holy in his attributes. He is loving. So in order to start to comprehend God, we have to start with a high view of God. And as I mentioned last week, a lot of times people on this earth don't have a high view of God. We have a high view of ourselves, but we don't have a high view of God. But then, secondly, we must then move to a humble view of man. Sometimes we place men, mankind, higher than what they need to be. When these bowls and vials in Revelation 16, along with the seals and trumpets and the vision, even the letters, uh, are, are being poured out, what we see graphically depicted is the depravity of man, the rebellion, the wickedness of mankind upon the earth. And listen to this. The measure of sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. The measure of sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. So think about it. I think I mentioned it last week. If you sin against the log, you're not going to be guilty. The log has no power, right? That does nothing. But if you sin against an infinitely holy God, then you are infinitely guilty. But a lot of times, we don't have the right view of sin. We don't have the right view of man. And then it leads to the third thing, quickly, that we must land on the hope of the gospel. And the more I've studied this great book, the more I've realized what Revelation is all about. Yes, it's about the end times, but it's about the gospel. Through and through, you see the gospel, as we mentioned Sunday on Easter, the gospel is what gives us hope, is it not? And when I think about, especially when I think about Easter, one word that comes to my mind, and it's probably a word that comes to your mind, is the word hope. We sang that on Sunday. Jesus Christ, our living what? Hope. He is our hope. And really, we must land on the hope of the gospel. The gospel is what gives us hope. It's very easy to be overwhelmed with this world, is it not? It's very easy to be overwhelmed with sin, uh, with all the evil that is rampant in our world. It's easy to be overwhelmed with this great book. But what we have to realize is that there is hope in Jesus Christ. And John is giving this to the Christians to help us understand that, hey, there's hope in Christ. And some of this you're not going to have to go through, but he's giving it to us to help us understand what is to come so that we can do a better job of sharing hope with others, sharing the gospel with others. And in understanding all this, again, we transition into chapter 17 tonight. You know, this is one of those chapters that are very applicable for the church today and applicable for Christians. In his book entitled Worldliness, C.J. Mahaney says this, Today, the greatest challenge facing Bible-believing American Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Let me say that again. I may have it in your notes, I may not. But the greatest challenge, he said, facing Bible-believing American Christians is not persecution from the world. Sometimes we think that, oh, the world is just persecuting the church. Oh, we're in danger of this persecution. That's not the greatest danger of the church. It's seduction by the world. Being seduced to worldliness. Charles Spurgeon even went a step further in his day, uh, lived back in the 1800s, I believe it was, uh, said something that was very ap uh, applicable for us today. He said, I believe that the one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Here's a man that lived over 100 years ago. Put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history and you will find a little marginal note, he says. In this age, people could readily see where the church began and the world ended. But in our day, and same as Spurgeon's, the lines have been blurred, haven't they? And it's hard to differentiate where the church begins, where the world ends. A lot of times there's a blending of the two. And that's why I've purposely even told people in regards to our music, I, I hate the term blended. 
in the sense of music. Well, we have blended music. No, we don't. Because to me, blended gives the connotation that we're trying to blend the world with the church. So what I've told people is that we try to have balanced worship because the Bible says we're supposed to sing into the Lord new song, hymns and spiritual songs, all of those things. I want to be balanced biblically in what we are trying to do. But to me, and I'm not trying to go off on people that, that say those things, I think they have the right heart and right motive. But a lot of times what I've seen is that there is a blend of the world and the church. And I think many would agree with that, right? And I was talking to my sister even the other day about it. You know, Easter Sunday was, was a great day, I think, through and through for, for so many churches, especially having a year like last year where we couldn't meet. I mean, you know, I kind of jokingly said we were up 1,000%. I was wrong. It was like 35,000% or something like that, you know, from whatever it was last year since we had like zero people on Easter Sunday because I think we recorded it on Saturday night, so no one was present on Easter Sunday. Uh, but anyway, uh, we were talking about it, and she's like, I just don't understand, you know, these mega churches and, and, and what, what the draw is. And, you know, I said, well, people, some, sometimes, you know, it, it, it's very easy to be judgmental in those churches, but sometimes people just want to show. They just want to go. They just want a place where they can fit in and then just kind of leave and, and escape. And there are some of those churches that are doing an amazing job, honestly. They are preaching, promoting the gospel, doing a phenomenal job. Uh, but there are some that, I mean, it's, I, feel, I feel like it's all about their social media presence. You know, how much presence they have in and through the world. And, and I've seen a lot of blendedness of the world in the church. So we were talking about that. And, and I, I, think, I think it's true because the reality is that we are very worldly as Christians, right? So because we are very worldly, we don't have a right view of God. It goes back to what I said just a minute ago. We have to start with the high view of God and a right view of man, a humble view of man. But if we don't have the right view of either, we're not going to have the right view of the church. And the reality is we live in a day that is blurred. There's no distinction. And study after study shows that the lifestyle of professing Christians should look different than the world around us. Again, this is kind of review from last week, but it's very important to note. We are just as materialistic, just as sexually immoral, just as self-centered as the world. And here's the reality. <laughs> we don't just like the world and all it offers. Many of us love it. Well, I, I like these things. No, no, no. We love them based on our actions, our attitudes. Again, this is important because it's setting the stage. John, the author of Revelation, also wrote several of the books in the New Testament. In 1 John, he tells us to love not the world, Right? neither the things that are in the world. So again, some people are like, I just don't understand the Bible. I don't understand what it says. Well, I, honestly, I, I can get that. But then at the same time, I'm like, no, it's not that hard when you really study it, especially a verse like that. Love not the world. Don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. It's pretty clear, is it not? I mean, I could probably even ask some of our kids in the school to tell me what that verse means. I dare say they probably tell me a really good definition of what that verse means. So when John says, hey, don't love the world, don't love the things in the world, what do you think he means? Kevin, what do you think he means? I know, oh goodness. Um, um, he clearly means to love the world. He clearly means to love the world. Yes. yes, public school right there. Yes, he clearly means to love not the world. <laughs> Good job. Great illustration. You, know, you really helped me with that. I appreciate it. I was yes, he was listening, I think. Maybe not. I was. Should I have asked Jenna? Maybe. Anyway, anyway, let me continue on. 
What he was doing was he was calling, let me turn the air on, I'm getting hot. He was calling the world to be different, to look different. Again, uh, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm beating a dead horse with some of this, but looking different from the world, acting different from the world, is not trying to fit into the world, right? Again, look, I, I struggle with this just as much as anyone. Honestly, I do. Because there is such an enamor by the world, right? There's such an enamor to be like them because that's our role models today. The role models are, are put up and, hey, we have to be like them. But John is saying, don't be like the world. Again, our schedules should look different. Our spending should look different. Our marriages should look different. Our parenting, our purity, our possessions, our love, our lives all should look different. And then right after John says to not love the world, he makes another bold statement. He says, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, that's pretty significant, isn't it? So if you love the world, what he's saying is you can't really love the Father. You can't love two things that are opposite at the same time, fully and effectively. Look, the desire that are often inside of us have nothing to do with the Spirit who resides within us. Worldliness is one of the key elements that is destroying the modern-day church. And the world is passing away. And that's what Revelation 17 and 18 is about. The system of the world is going to come down. It doesn't last. But living for God, living on mission, is what truly lasts. Look, again, I want you to understand it. Don't love the world. Don't love the things that are in this world because here's the reality. They will destroy you. If the only thing you're trying to pursue is more worldliness, then I guarantee you, your life will end in ruin. Mark it down. It's not me trying to be prophetic. That's just me being biblical because it's in every generation, people have left the church, left God, left Christianity, pursued worldliness, and it didn't end well. I mean, I could ask many of you that. I'm sure, Brother Ron, you've probably seen that, right? I'm sure, Brother Allen, you've probably seen that in your lifetime. People that have left the church, left Christ, left, left that for a pursuit of the worldliness. And that's why I try to, again, teach and preach passionately because I want you to understand this. And really, it's as much for myself as well. But listen, listen to what one preacher says. He says, the goal that everything that the angels have been revealing, that's the whole book of Revelation about worship, of who, you, who, who are you going to worship? That's the point of all God's judgments, of all God's dealings with the world. All God's plans for history from beginning to end have one goal, worship God and worship God alone. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon, the, the power of Babylon, the pleasures of Babylon. Don't even worship the holy messenger who brings you the news that Babylon has fallen. Worship God and God alone. So as we get into the lesson tonight, why would any sane person choose Babylon the worldly system over the new Jerusalem? Well, the text answers that question. The first thing in verse number one through five is this. The world is seductive. It will attract you. The world is seductive. It will attract you. John is told or in these verses to come and see. Come and see the judgment of this, this great whore, this prostitute, what she will endure. 
And we're told in verse number 15 that the waters is referring to the people of the world where it says, Come hither, I will show thee uh, the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Verse number 15, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, back to verse number 1, where the whore sitteth, are the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So it's all the people of the world. So we understand that. The harlot is said to lead the kings, the rulers of this world into sexual immorality. And the image here is not of physical adultery, but of spiritual adultery and idolatry. The lust for power and material possessions and sexual uh, appetites have intoxicated this world. Verse number three, look what John says. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The next several verses give us an amazing imagery. But thankfully, John gives us an explanation in the next couple of verses. Now, a lot of times in the Bible, what we see, especially in back in chapter 12, uh, the color scarlet is a color of Satan and of sin. Isaiah chapter 1 talks about that. Scarlet is a brilliant red color, sometimes with a slightly orange tinge. Uh, scarlet is also often associated with immorality and sin, particularly prostitution or adultery largely because of the passage referring to the great harlot, the great whore, dressed in purple and scarlet. The color is often referred to as the color of Satan by some. Scarlet was a popular color in Rome, in the Roman Empire. And both scarlet and purple were both associated with rank and riches. The golden cup within her hands, uh, where it talks about this, uh, I think it was in verse uh, 2 uh, through 4, where it, it lists the, some of the identifications there. This is alluding to Jeremiah's description of Babylon's worldwide influence and idolatry. The cup is then filled with abominable things that she gives out to the world. Verse number five, and upon her forehead, <coughs> excuse me, was a name written mystery. It's all in caps too. Mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abomination of the earth. Much like the Roman prostitutes of the day, she wears a headband, in a sense, and here's the mystery revealed. Now, regarding a specific city, it's better to see this as referring to Rome in that day. But its significance is greater than just Rome. This prostitute is the great system of godlessness that leads people away from worship of God to their own destruction. See, the Babylonian system has, in one way or another, given birth to all false religions. All false religions have come from this one system that has seduced men, mankind, into opposing God and persecuting his servants. The second thing we see about this system, verses six through, or verse number six, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints. That's pretty, pretty graphic. And with the blood of martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. <clears throat> the second thing we see is this, the world is murderous. It takes innocent life. The world is murderous. It takes innocent life. This system is willing to sacrifice others to promote themselves for their own benefit, for their own prosperity. <clears throat> the seeds of martyrdom have been planted throughout the New Testament. Men like John the Baptist and Stephen and James and Antipas and many others have had their lives taken away because the world opposed Jesus Christ, opposed what they were doing, and they took their life from them. And the more blood the world drinks, the more blood the world wants. That's the reality. And the world and the system of the world is murderous. 
it freely and willingly takes innocent life for the sake of their own. And you can see this through the church age as well when you study church history. And it's an amazing study of church history through the ages. <coughs> study the Middle Ages and the Reformation. Study the, the religious wars that started because people refused to bow down to the system of the world and instead chose to follow Christ. What happened to them? They were persecuted. They were beheaded. They were killed because of what they believed. Even some churches killed Christians. In the past century, really, as I've read, <coughs> was among the bloodiest in Christian history. But really, we should expect the 21st century and beyond to be even worse. Because it's going to get worse. You think about 19, uh, you know, 1914 when World War I started. And you, know, you think of 1940s when World War II and the Holocaust. And, and just the devastation of lives. All the wars that we endured in the 1900s. Again, it pales in comparison to what's coming and what will come. Third thing we see is that the world is resilience, meaning that it keeps coming back. Verse 7, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? Why are you marveling? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit." And go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. Strange language. How can the beast be and then not be and then will be to come? Well, <coughs> we'll explain. Again, it's talking about the resiliency. John is just amazed and in awe at everything he saw. And again, who wouldn't be in John's situation? I, I can't even imagine the visions that he actually saw. I mean, just trying to write them down for any, any person to understand. It's more than probably any human can understand and comprehend. And the angel tells him that he's going to explain it, and he does. Now, Babylon is mentioned in scriptures upwards of 287 times, second only to Jerusalem. And it's always symbolized in organized hatred against God. Verse 8 it's really a parody on the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A description of the Lamb, you know, which was, it is, and, and yet is. There's always, and we've talked about this when we talked about the Antichrist. There has always been a system of Antichrist throughout the world. <coughs> Antichrist, which is basically, what, is, what does Antichrist mean? <coughs> Someone. Yeah, against Christ. And there's always been those that have been against Christ. From the very beginning... And one thing I referenced you know, a couple weeks ago in that study, which was <clears throat> very interesting to think about, Satan doesn't know everything. He doesn't. Again, we give him more credit than he deserves. Now, he is a powerful entity. He's a created being. But he doesn't know who the Antichrist will be. We think, no, he knows. No. You know who knows? One person. The one that is sovereign over all. <clears throat> God. So in every generation, there has risen an Antichrist that I'm sure <coughs> Satan was thinking, this is the one. Now he knows the Bible. He knows what's coming. <coughs> so he has worked his hardest throughout the generations. And you think about it. Uh, it's happened with uh, people like uh, Antiochus, Epiphanes, and Nero, and Domitian, and Genghis Khan, and Shaka, and Zulu, and Mussolini, and Hitler, and Stalin, and Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, countless others have been anti-Christ, against Christ, against the church. 
There have been civilizations, Egypt, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the Ottomans, the Soviet Union, Communist China, uh, now (laughs) much of the Western world that has been against Christ. So what I mean is there has always been a, a rise, and then what? A fall, and then another rise of Antichrist. And that's what John is, is describing here. They rise, they fall, they die, and then they reappear in another form. <coughs> it's not reincarnation, but <coughs> always rising up. Excuse me. Continue on. I think the fourth thing tonight. The world, verse number 9 and 10, is organized, meaning it has a plan. Look at verse number 9. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. The narrative of the Bible is a story of redemption, a story of restoration in the unfolding plan of God's sovereignty. There is... No unanimity among Bible scholars in the interpretation of these verses. Most agree, though, that the phrase, the seven heads are seven mountains, is a reference to Rome in first century context. Because remember, John is writing to a first century audience. He isn't necessarily writing this to a 21st century audience. He is writing to a specific group of people. And first and foremost, that's what we must understand when studying the Bible. I think of countless times when we study Paul's letter. Is there an application for the church today? Yes, there is. But when he is writing to Ephesus or Philippi, who is he writing to? That specific church, specifically. Again, God used that and uses it to speak to us as well, but we have to understand the context. So Rome, in that era, as well as today, is known as the city on seven hills. Seven would also communicate power and authority. Verse 10, it talks about the seven kings. Yet again, much speculation is given or to who John is referencing. Many believe that the angel is referencing five leaders of the ancient world. It could be, it might not be. Honestly, that's not what this study is about. It's not to just argue and, to, you know, who do we think this is? Who do we think it might be? I'm trying to give you some, some facts of what some say, but really just the understanding of this passage. Some say it could be five leaders of the ancient world, of ancient Rome, that have already died when John was alive. Men like Julius Caesar and Tiberius and Caligula and Claudius and Nero. Some believe that then the sixth was probably the one who was alive at the time of John's writing, who was Domitian. The other that is yet to come probably refers to the Antichrist in this understanding when he comes to revive Rome as the power of the world. Now, Rome was one of the greatest powers in the world history. And the Roman power was also one that built the Colosseum to throw Christians into, right? <coughs> Christians were fed to the lions. Now, another way to interpret this, and again, just giving you understanding of both sides, would be five kingdoms that have already passed off the scene. Kingdoms like Egypt and Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. The present kingdom could be that of Rome, and the future kingdom could be that of the beast. Now, the rise of this final kingdom will be impressive, to say the least. It will embody the brutality, the greatness, the splendor, the strength, the wickedness of all past empires. Now think about if you've ever studied ancient history, you understand that some of those empires were downright, despicable, wicked, horrific. And it's going to embody all of that in one. But like its predecessors, it will have its day, but like its predecessors, its day will be short-lived. 
which means it's only here for a time. You see, the world has a plan, but it's no match for God's plan because the world's plan will fail. It's short, it's for a season, but God's plan is forever. It's for eternity. The next thing we see, verses 11 through 13, quickly, <clears throat> the world is powerful, and I just alluded to this, but its time is short. The ten horns represent ten kings or world leaders who will receive authority for a short time and have one purpose. Now, it's interesting because typically when someone uh, rises to power, they're not trying to then give their power to someone else, right? When they rise to power, they want the power, right? They want the control. But their sole purpose is to then give their power and authority to the Antichrist. And their system and kingdom is powerful, but their reign is short. Look at these verses, 11 through 13. And the beast that was and is not, and he that is is the eighth in, of the seven, <coughs> goeth into perdition, and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. Again, he describes that. Having received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So this one hour is referring to a designated period of time, meaning that it's short. And I'm saying it's actually going to have only, only have one hour. It's, it's going to be a specific time. Maybe it's, maybe it's a year. Maybe it's two years. But regardless, it's short. It's powerful, but it's short. Continuing on, verse number 14. The world is also foolish because it opposes the Lord of Lords and the king of kings. Look at verse 14. Just tell, see how stupid these people are. These shall make war with who? The lamb. And who is the lamb? Yeah, Jesus Christ. Again, how stupid can you be? Those that know who Jesus Christ is, know his power. They decide to make war with the lamb. And the lamb shall what? Next two words. It's right there on the screen overcome them. Duh. I mean, honestly, if you know the Bible and you believe the Bible to be the word of God, you know that Jesus is going to be victorious. He has already been victorious because he has already conquered death, which no man, no woman in history has ever done. But he has done that because he is the only one that can. So they make war with him. And of course, he's victorious. It'd be like Nate trying to make war with myself. Now, unless Nate has like a bazooka, he's not going to beat me. <laughs> if it's a hand-to-hand -hand combat, I'm going to beat him. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. It, uh, honestly, I know the picture is just, it, it's a weird picture, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Nate is no match for an adult. He's six years old. He's a kid. The world, as great as they might be, as squirrely as they might be, is no match for Jesus Christ. For the Lamb, the Lamb, the, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. So how foolish it is. And here they do, they, they, make, they make war with the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, Jesus Christ. You know, I was thinking about this as I was preparing it last week. I wonder if Vegas is taking bets right now. Because if so, I'm going to put my money in say, I got my money on Jesus. I'm just kidding, I'm not going to make bets. I'm just <laughs> saying that, you know. Can I, can I make a bet that when the world says, I'm going to make war with the Lamb... And I, I got my money on the lamb. That's, that's what I'm saying, okay? Yeah, cha-ching. I think we're all going to win. Um, but all of those, I'm not, I'm not honoring that or anything like that, okay? 
So let me, let me go back. Some of you are like, whoa, what's he saying up here? All of those who remain, who have then given themselves over to this whore, this prostitute, this system, are called the chosen and the faithful with Jesus Christ. Because look what it says. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's us. If you're saved, that's you. Verse 15, what we see is the world is self-destructive. It will not last. The angel in these verses explains the meaning of the waters that he saw the harlot sitting upon. Again, it's all the people, all the tongues, all the nations, the multitudes of the earth. And this transitory nature of this world system, Babylon, has been alluded to several times in chapter 17. And now it's driven home in, in, in really graphic depiction. Verse 15, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate, and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will. So God is going to make them turn on each other and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast. And so the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is the great, that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. In Revelation, again, the prostitute has a massive influence that covers the earth. And as verse 15 makes it clear, suddenly it's over. She is finished. An abrupt turnabout will be that these ten horns, these ten kings, are now turning on one another. And in a moment, basically, she's old news. Her demise is at hand. And this hostile action, her destruction, the, the cool thing about this, as we've talked about in every chapter thus far, everything that happens is under one person's control. Jesus Christ. It's under God's control. And as we've already alluded to, everyone that has power, the power that they have has been given to them by God. And even now, God is going to put in their minds to turn on upon, upon each other. He is orchestrating it all. It's all part of his providential plan. And there is no denying, when you think about the end times, that we live in a day in which you cannot tell where the world ends and the church begins. Again, our lifestyles in so many ways look just like the lifestyles of non-Christians. We're so materialistic. We're so hedonistic, sensualistic, self-centered, sexually immoral, and the list goes on. And again, the Bible tells us the church should be different. We should stand out. Jesus calls us to be a light in the darkness. Light stands out, does it not? Light is different than darkness. It's a simple fact. You shine a light in darkness, what's going to happen? It's going to light up. Because that's what light was created to do. We were created to light up the world around us. But many of us, kind of like that old children's song, what do we do? We take our light and we hide it. Because I'm afraid of what they think of me. So instead of being light and really making a difference, I want to fit in. But does God call us to fit in or stand out? He's called us to stand out. Again, I close with those quotes that I mentioned earlier. The greatest challenge facing Bible-believing American Christians is not persecution from the world, but, but seduction by the world. Listen to that again. 
and as your pastor, as your friend, as a father. It's one of those things that I, that I fear with you know, my own children. I don't want them to be seduced by the world. I don't think any parent wants that. But I also understand that the more I'm seduced by the world, the more my kids are going to be even more amplified. And it's very easy to go off on our children when they don't do what we expect them to do. But sometimes, as I've said many times before, we have to look in the mirror to see what we're doing. Because a lot of times our children are mirror images of us. And it's not a pretty picture that we see sometimes, is it? It's not. You know, as I kind of jokingly mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's like, you know, we call out our kids for things and they're like, but mom, dad, you do that. You do the same thing. Yeah, see? Uh huh. <laughs> exactly. Do I need to give the mic to the kids and just let them speak? Maybe next week. That's a great idea, right? All the parents in here are like, no. My kids are like in the kid part, so it's okay. Like, yeah, it's all good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh. But anyway, again, C.S. Lewis, I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, with sex, with ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. And like an arrogant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. And what a, what a, what a great image there. We're half-hearted. Fooled by worldliness is what he's saying. Fooled by sensuality. Fooled by materialism. And it, it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart as a Christian, as a pastor, as a dad. So many things. And it's not just here. It's, it's, it's all over America. But the reason there are so many empty seats a lot of times is because of what I preached about tonight. Because too many people are more materialistic. They're more consumed and more concerned with getting ahead. And I understand there are times and seasons where you have to, I, I get that, trust me. I'm not just berating that. Some people have to go out of town and they wish they didn't have to go out of town. I understand that. But honestly, sometimes we choose those things. And I've seen it countless times, especially growing up in a pastor's home. I've seen people counsel with myself or even with my dad. And it's one of those things where you give them the warning and you try to offer instruction. Well, I got this awesome job, this awesome opportunity. Well, is there a good church in the area? I don't know. But I'm going to make them like 50000 more a year. So it's obviously of God. Are we sure about that? Because sometimes we're so consumed with more, more, more that what we do is we lose. We lose our marriages. lose our families. So really, is more worth it? No, it's not. And I wish more would hear this and more would apply it. But again, it's up to you to take what you've heard and then share it and pass it on to others. And what we see as we close this out, this key truth is that God allows the wickedness to wreak havoc on the world, but eventually he defeats them, all those that oppose him in worldliness and rebellion. It goes back to verse, what, 14, 15, one of those verses. Um, where's it at? Um, yeah, verse 14. You know, those that are going to make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them. I mean, 
What a great verse. They're foolish in their thinking. Hey, we can destroy Jesus once and for all. We can destroy the church. We can destroy all that is good. But no, you can't. So go ahead and join yourself with the world and you'll fall. But join yourself with Christ and you will be victorious. Is it tough? Yes, it's tough. It's very tough. If you say it's not, then you're fooling yourself. No matter how spiritual you are, it's difficult to live for Christ. Every day. Every minute. It really is. I mean, as a, as a pastor, I am not on this pedestal. I am not this super superstar Christian. I, I struggle just as much with worldliness as the next person. I do because I have a flesh. And my flesh wants what the flesh wants. And I have to constantly fight that to try to not give in to the flesh, but allow the Spirit to overtake me and to rule me and to control me. And I know if I struggle with it, you probably struggle on a much more magnified scale. We all do. So instead of just giving in, as many people do, they just give in like, ah, whatever, it's not a big deal. No, don't give in, don't give up, keep fighting. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have the Lamb with us. We have Jesus Christ with us. And that's all we need. It's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray.